0: Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex and I'm an MD pursuing a Harvard MBA, a Stanford masters and an Oxford PhD in computer science. And I'm interested in investing and entrepreneurship.
1: My name's Shad, I'm an MD and a Harvard MBA interested in healthcare investing and innovation.
0: Our guest today is Dr. Shaheen Lahan, as the CMO of Click Therapeutics, a prescription digital therapeutics company that develops, validates and commercializes software as prescription medical treatments for people with unmet medical needs. Shaheen is a physician scientist with over 15 years of experience in healthcare, academia, and industry focusing on neuroscience research and development. Shaheen is a board certified uh, physician in both neurology and pain medicine with clinical training from the Cleveland Clinic and Mass General Hospital.
1: Shaheen, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path.
2: Thank you, Shad and Alex. Now, it's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. You know, we're so
1: excited about this particular episode. Obviously, we're excited about every episode, but we really, really look forward to speaking with you for quite a while now. Shaheen, let's start at the very beginning. Uh, you know, for those in our audience who may be unfamiliar with your story and your path, can you talk to us a little bit about your childhood and how and why you ended up pursuing a career in medicine? And then what eventually made you venture off the beaten path beyond clinical and research medicine?
2: Oh, thank you for the question. I, actually, I just love the title "Physicians Off the Beaten Path." You know, it, uh, it was almost like a, a hook, bait, a, a bait and sinker for me because it it perfectly encapsulates my life uh, to date and probably in the future as well. Um, now I'm going to treat this as a therapy session because we're going into my my childhood. Please um, do absolutely, absolutely. So I'll I'll be as vulnerable as possible. Uh, no, no. Frankly, I, I was born and raised out of in Los Angeles to parents uh, who immigrated from the Fiji Islands. Uh, my father was the first in his family to go to college. He went to the closest landmass, which was Hawaii. Uh, you know, graduated, and uh, as as any true patriot, uh, enlisted in the Vietnam War and as part of the U.S. Army, uh, returned back stateside, settled down in Los Angeles, uh, married my mom, and uh, and and here I was introduced into this world. You know, I, I kind of take you way back because it's it's kind of relevant to my journey and my experience. Uh, my father, when I was quite young, suffered a brainstem stroke uh, with a condition called locked-in syndrome where he could only blink to communicate. In fact, in the VA hospital, when I when I was just seven, I would visit there just as much as visit school and at home and see him in a comatose situation for around 18 months of our life. Uh, you know, I vividly recall the... The conversations about you know withholding or drawing care uh, at some point because of you know lack of progress and neurological recovery and so on. My my mom is very faith based and uh, she persevered and I'm glad she did because my my dad since then uh, lived a, a really healthy productive life you know with just minimal cognitive deficits essentially uh, that really shaped my 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 future past. And uh, obviously, I am now a neurologist um, as a result to that. But, but one that, uh, you know, really seeks out actually what, what is your story when I interview medical students or residents into new programs, uh, or even actually scientists into my, my present type of positions, you know, what, what's your personal basis for anything that you do, any pursuit that you take, because it's, it really had um, a significant impact on me.
1: Thank you so much for mentioning that, Shaheen, and and really appreciate you uh, sort of opening up about the situation with your father. You know, everyone has different motivations and inspirations as to why they do what they do. And and sometimes I've found a personal tragedy in a weird way uh, tends to be sort of the most potent of those factors. And so really appreciate you sort of discussing that openly. You mentioned something about what is your story. Uh, One of our HPS professors here who teaches venture capital and private equity, Joe Tango, He talks about students' second stories. Uh, That's sort of the story that everyone comes with, the personal story, but uh, you don't often put forth, at least at the very beginning when you meet people. But those second stories can be the most potent, again, in shaping our lives. So really appreciate you mentioning all of that. Uh, You've had such a fantastic uh, career, just, you know, not only in clinical medicine, but research medicine, now in industry. Uh, There's lots to really talk about, but let's just pick one aspect of your current trajectory. So you're in the digital therapeutic space right now as the chief medical officer of CLIC. Let's chat about digital therapeutics because Alex and I are actually very intrigued by this space. It seems to us that digital therapeutics started with sort of digitizing these traditional MOAs, mechanisms of action like you know, CBT and using it in behavioral intensive diseases like substance use disorder or nicotine use disorder or you know alcohol use, things like that. But perhaps in the future there's going to be increasing use of novel MOAs. I know some folks like Akili are using uh, serious games for ADHD and things like that, perhaps even MOAs that you can use to target pathways that are currently, you know, undruggable via uh, traditional pills. And, And so I'm just curious, you know, why do you think digital therapeutics started the way it did? And how do you think digital therapies will evolve down the line with respect to either MOAs or the types of disease indications people go after just Give us an idea as to the the origins and the trajectory of uh, digital therapeutics.
2: Absolutely, and it and it shows that you've done your homework. Actually, <laughs> I I really appreciate that. That there's there certainly has been an evolution in this uh, realm of digital therapeutics, which is a subset of digital health, right? So there are technolo- technological based solutions that help uh, individuals or systems of healthcare kind of achieve better health outcomes. Uh, well-being, sense of community and things of that nature. Now, digital therapeutics is one notch beyond that, right? It's using software, harnessing all the capabilities of software to actually affect to effectuate change. And yes, you're absolutely right. Thus far, it's been behavioral change through cognitive behavioral therapy just because uh, that had the easiest lift, right? It's digitizing what's currently face to face. There is a common rubric and curriculum uh, and, uh, and and frankly, there's a, a therapeutic alliance, right? So there's a series of steps that both the patient and the practitioner understand if they if they take it that they will reach a common goal. And usually, that is you know reducing some defeatist belief or rumination, anxiety, depression, you know, some side of altered uh, thinking or thought pra- pathway. I would call that the absolute infancy of DTX. And you you called it out about there's even some undruggable states or indications or targets. Uh, DTX has the power of actually working on brain circuits, right? So I actually do that. I have a, one of the largest, in fact, no, why, why do I say one of the, I have the largest discovery, translational sciences, clinical development, medical affairs, clinical operations teams that exist in any digital therapeutic, digital health company. And what we are doing is actually coming up with those novel mechanisms of actions by one mapping out the entire brain, mapping about uh, 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 about circuits, right? So if you connect two areas of the brain and, uh, and they're both responsible for conducting, let's say, uh, persona, behavior, and action, right? Then that's called a circuit. And in diseases, you either have underactive circuits or overactive circuits. And if we can modulate them by either simultaneously activating or suppressing them, we're now harnessing the power of neuroplasticity. Right? We could break those neuronal connections and therefore cause atrophy and break an overactive disease process, or we could build and strengthen them like a muscle and thereby, uh, you know lift a hypoactive state that's going on. That's the entire new future of digital therapeutics. And uh, frankly, that that's why I'm in this space. I used to be in the drug development and drug discovery space. and uh, you know, frankly, that is screening assays, you know, you're screening these potential biological or, or chemical candidates against um, uh, biological essays or mouse models or other animal models. And you're seeing if they have some surrogate effect, right? Are these mice not licking their paws as much? Okay, maybe that will help with pain syndromes. Are they not chasing their tail as much? Is that gonna help in anxiety states? You know, frankly, that's what it is. And then you see around 99% of them drop off when you study them in humans. In digital therapeutics, you don't have to go through that beginning, the biological essays and the animal models. You could immediately test them because they're safe and tolerable solutions, and then you have to prove them. Just because they're easier to develop as opposed to d- drug assets does not mean that the end consumer, being a provider, a healthcare system, a regulator, and eventually patient, is going to have a different evidentiary bar. So you got to develop just as much, if not more so, robust evidence because it's a new mechanism, right, of how to intervene on the brain, a new category. And so that's why I have like novel proprietary technologies like EFMT, Emotional FACES Memory Task, connects the prefrontal lobe of the, um, uh, of the brain to the amygdala, the emotional processing center. So a cognitive emotional connection in a very unique way. And we have fMRI evidence. So I have now functional evidence that this actually re-engages a state of the brain that's been implicated in a major depressive disorder. And frankly, now that's in the trial. A major trial phase three study with a pharmacological partner uh, with over 35 sites throughout the United States. That's one example of many that we could use to harness this. I mean, the ultimate pathway is actually to democratize healthcare. And how do we do that? You know, unfortunately, drugs have uh, access issues, right? Reimbursement issues, administration issues. We've even seen that in formulations of these miracle drugs, uh, which are vaccines, right? So refrigeration, all these technologies. You know, if you develop digital therapeutics that work just on edge, that means right on your smartphone, doesn't even need to interconnect devices. I could drop this application on a smartphone in sub-Saharan Africa where you don't get 5G, 4G, 2G, whatever. You have no access to the internet and it could work with folks that could use it. And it's intuitive, frankly, yeah.
1: No, Shaheen, I uh, really appreciate you sort of laying out uh, the origins and how the digital therapeutic space has changed. Just in, in the last, you know, five to 10 years, it's a relatively nascent space, like you mentioned, and is a subset of digital health. But the potency and the ability for it to change people's lives is really remarkable. Uh, and I think you were referring to Clicks uh, CNI, sort of clinical neurobehavioral platform, if I'm not mistaken. And very, very interesting. It just seems like that some of the rigor or maybe all of the rigor that's traditionally present in biotech is slowly moving into the digital therapeutic space and you you mentioned that uh, the, the bar is not any lower just because it's cheaper and maybe takes you know five, six years to develop instead of 10 to 12 years to develop a drug the, the bar on the, on the part of the FDA or the physicians who prescribe these or on the payers who want to figure out whether or not they want to actually reimburse these, they still have a very, very high bar for evidence uh, in the digital therapeutic space. So, really appreciate you laying out all of those different uh, dynamics for us. You describe Clicks' work. If I read correctly, the whole work process is being sort of a four-step journey that begins with developing, then validating, then registering, and then finally commercializing the product. Can you talk to us a little bit more in detail about that process? Uh, Just for folks who may not know how a digital therapeutics company actually works and and builds out their product or their platform.
2: Absolutely. And I I would say we have a whole end to end, you know, design to commercialization system uh, to to have a really good grasp of the landscape. I mean, classically, how it's been done is there have been companies that have in-license old web based academic technologies. Right. And then crammed them into a smartphone And then uh, filed FDA uh, applications, got approvals, and then had a lot of trouble in market adoption um, and engagement, uh, essentially, with their users. Now, we've taken the opposite approach in that we develop everything from scratch, from design. We have co-design and co-development principles, meaning we invite patients and providers uh, to, to have a say in what the pro, uh, product requirements are, what their pain points are, their burden of disease, what's their residual symptoms, what's their quality of life indicators. Plus, yes, we know what the druggable targets are because there are FDA guidelines on essentially you know how to do that. Uh, once we get that set out, it's actually a perfect marriage between tech and sciences. Now, this is hard to say. There are big companies trying to do this, including Google Health and Apple uh, and Facebook. And you'll read some of the blogs from their CMOs where they have a tough time because there's there's almost two polar opposites. Tech tech is very fast forward, almost unregulated environments, and then scientists and clinicians are in this highly regulated, methodical, systematic types of thinking that goes along. And you could have clash points, uh, you know, if you if you don't foresee kind of these frictions that goes on board. And especially if you set up institutions that are siloed, then it's going to be a handoff model. And frankly, there are there are principles. I'm a firm believer that the product. Is uh, just a gateway or a window into the organization that has built the product, uh, frankly, and you could see that in clunky interfaces. And you're moving from one, you know, from one aspect or one module to the other. There's no seamless uh, experience. So what we've done is dismantle all of that: dismantled hierarchy, dismantled departments, dismantled silos, and it's all about team-based collaborative structure with one accountable pro- uh, program lead. And it's this institute model, and in, in fact, it's an ecosystem, and it's fed by Uh, a variety of sources. So we have AI machine learning researchers and engineers. We have program clinical scientists who are subject matter experts in the disease in which they are tackling. Uh, Then we have clinical operations specialists who knows how to conduct trials really well, all all in the same team. On our tech side, we have user experience and designers uh, that actually have some sort of clinical background. We have engineers that understand structured and unstructured data And, um, and how important it's going to be for real world evidence generation. And I could go on and on and on, but they sit in the same teams and they communicate the same way and the way that they communicate is not transfer of documents and Hey, go out and build it. It's actually, how do we build this together and iterate? And you will see them daily. They are looking at prototypes. Um, questioning through a Delphi model, you know, patients and providers and all the other stakeholders, is this useful? Will this integrate into your EHR system, into your dashboards, you know, into your daily life, essentially, for patients that eventually goes on? I think that's the nucleus, you know, that that needs to happen. And the second that you mentioned was the platform. So you could have companies that pitch off product and product and product and don't learn from each one of those right and you're going to spend the same time the same capital the same you know intellectual capital too not just financial to build solutions and not learn from the past ones once you develop a platform like what we've done we could actually pull out these mechanisms of actions put them in towards and test them early on in a particular indication almost in a trans-diagnostic approach and you can already see since we're targeting circuits it's easier. We're not targeting substance abuse contingency management, right? We're targeting circuits that are involved in a variety of diseases across therapeutic areas. And so actually people have to grapple uh, that because folks in the development space, particularly with drug development, are used to therapeutic areas like CNS, GI oncology, immunology. When it comes to digital therapeutics, we actually could break all of that uh, because it's, it's elementally based on domains. One behavioral change, right? I, I have this, you know, famous saying that when you wake up, more often than not, you're actually looking at your phone than your bedfellow. That shows you how much dependent you are. And when you go to sleep, more often you're inter- you know, interacting with your phone than your bedfellow. And, and think about that. That resonates with folks. It's a be- and That becomes a habit. And so, in fact, our CEO and co-founder, uh, David Klein, kind of realized, had that epiphany that we are so married and wedded to the smartphone, why not use it to build healthy habits and healthy behaviors? and then the evolution of of brain change and neuromodulation came into the uh, to the mix. So I must say you have to have a behavioral engine then you know, emotional regulation. So there are a lot of barriers to treatment like stress, anxiety, loneliness, and we can mitigate against that with particular mechanisms of action. Then there are cognition barriers, right? So these, these are uh, executive dysfunction, attention problems, memory, speech, and language. And so we develop through these domains, multiple MOAs, and we build a more holistic solution. Yes, there are single domain companies out there. Look at the MSK space. You have Hinge and Kayas that do uh, rehabilitation very well. But they're not employing uh these cognitive, emotional, and behavioral approaches. And then you have substance abuse treatments that are CBT plays that are doing behavioral control, but they're not employing emotional cognition and physical uh domains. We we are across domains, trans diagnostic and a platform-based company. Yeah.
1: No, that makes a lot of sense, Shaheen. And really clearly laid out, especially from the perspective of people who may not be super familiar with the space. You know, you sort of mentioned the nucleus of of Qlik with its engineers, designers who design that user interface and and clinicians and all these different interdisciplinary folks. It seems like it might be challenging for a startup in this space to actually gather all those resources, but I imagine more and more you'll need startups to actually bring all of these different people together to create a holistic product that not only is efficacious and clinically validated, but actually drives engagement and people like to actually use it and and isn't clunky. And so you'll need all of those different types of people to come together and work on a problem. But I imagine for a startup, it can be quite challenging, if not anything else, you know, beyond a technical perspective from just a financing perspective. You know, if you were starting a company like this right now, you know, if you were starting the next click or the next Achilles or the next pair, what advice would you offer to founders uh, to, to go about solving this nucleus problem?
2: Oh sure, sure. I, I I would first say, what are you hoping to solve, actually? So yes, there, there's I almost gave you kind of the uh, playbook of the development. Uh, but 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 really, what's kind of uniting you? Are you trying to advance cognitive neurosciences? Are you trying to advance uh, uh, physical rehabilitation and recovery after you know acute injuries? Are you doing chronic disease management? There there is no single one size fit all solution. And so you need to know what your intended solution is meant to address, and it can't be everything. And, um, and your solution can't be both a digital companion, a diagnostic, a digital health tool, a digital, digital therapeutic, a prescription digital therapeutic, right? You're going to have to find out, you know, which one you're trying to build. And then the resources and lifts are very different. I must say, I'm in the, the most right, you know, uh, if, if we're talking about a spectrum from least lift to most lift. I have scrutiny, you know, I have scrutiny from regulators. I have scrutiny from Jayco and healthcare systems, SOC2 compliance is high trust. I have scrutinies from KOLs and opinion leaders who are comparing me to drugs and, uh, and other medical devices. I have scrutiny from, from uh, patients who, as opposed to taking a pill, which is a very passive act, they got to interact and engage with it, right? Um, now on the flip side, on the opposite end, if you're just creating, you know, consumer centric wellness applications that you just have to please a consumer. And uh, there are great models out there. Um, I, I often say this. So academics create really, really internally valid, very strong therapeutic things that no one wants to use, essentially. And then consumer-centric solutions create highly engaging, it's all interactional forces, but to no health outcomes. We are somewhere right in between. It's, it's a fusion between consumer-centric and academic oriented companies because. Just like in drug products, you have PK, PD, you know, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, uh, uh, dose-response relationships. Ours is clinical sciences times engagement sciences equals out, uh, efficacy, equals um, effectiveness that's going out there. And we can't miss any of those ladders. So one, define what you want to be. Then two, define what the evidentiary barrier is uh, and requirements is for your, pot- your potential stakeholder. So if you're consumer centric, that's going to largely be your your consumers, which will be patients right in this in this landscape. If you're in the middle ground, that's going to be probably employer contracts or business to business type of deals to have, yes, a lower evidentiary barrier, but higher than patients and much more clinical factors. And if you're in my field, it's going to be all in the above. So you're going to have to bring on all of these folks that I talked about. Yeah,
1: I really appreciate you sort of conceptualizing and frameworking the difference between sort of these employer-based disease management platforms the d2c platforms that that are present and have been present for a while in digital health and then now sort of the nascent uh prescription digital therapeutics and and what sort of the theoretical and practical differences between them are you know the last question i had about uh, digital therapeutics before i'll pass it on to alex to to sort of chat about some other topics Uh, you know we've sort of chatted about all the all the good stuff and and there's a lot there's still a lot of barriers to digital therapeutics. Some I can just think of is our, you know, reimbursement, physician education, patient awareness, pair, and PBM awareness, digital formularies are still getting off the ground. We were speaking to Steve Miller, who just retired as the chief clinical officer from from Cigna, and uh, he was talking about, you know, they were one of the first ones to come out with digital formularies, but a lot of PBMs still don't know a lot about this space. Um, so uh, an investor interest is also a big one. How do you think about each of these problems and, and, and how do you think they're going to shake out in the next you know, three to five years?
2: Oh, very much so. I really appreciate the question. I think we've gone through now the regulatory hurdles. And remember, biologics, which was a new category of medicine, had the same problem. In fact, they had to create a whole new center, right, uh, to, to manage uh, biologics and get reimbursement and structures of how to deliver them. Um distribution channels, reimbursements for decisions making, you know, any anything that's great and especially a new category of of medicine are, are going to have these obstacles. And so we've checked off. The first one is a clear regulatory pathway with de novo and 510k software as a medical device guidelines. There's just recently FDA issued this digital health uh, guidance, um, you know, which actually I'm part of a group that we're writing a position paper on. So that's fine. Now you've you've met, you mentioned now the the residual, and I'll, I'll give you in a nutshell of why uh, those have not taken off. Uh, evidence, 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 evidence. They have. I used to actually sit on Virginia Medicaid's Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee. We looked at eight billion dollars of formulary decisions every year, and I used to look at these evidentiary dossiers from every type of drug and medical device that you would imagine. Aetna was absolutely right when it reviewed the 12 uh, prescription digital therapeutics on the market and decided to cover none of them. Their evidence is just lacking. Their RCTs are not well controlled. They have, you know, almost 100, some of 100 patients or less in their trials. They're not replicated or validated. They're not showing the Um, the uh, pathophysiology is actually changing through EEGs or fMRIs or other, you know, objective type of markers. They're not having real world evidence, real world patients. So when you're not paying patients in in well-controlled clinical trials, you know, or real users, uh, can you show that data? They don't have durability. So long-term data, they don't have health outcomes and uh, outcomes and research data, right? Are we reducing cost utilization? Are we reducing switches to high cost uh, medications and procedures? And frankly, they're failing on multiple ends. And so that's why there's no surprise to me. You know, if they had the same level of evidence as drugs and formularies were declining them, then I would say, hold the brakes. We're being held to a different standard. No, we're being held to the same standards, but collectively as an industry, we're not putting forth the evidence um, uh, dossiers uh, that are as robust, yeah.
1: Very unique insight and really appreciate that. And I just wonder if that's uh, partially because of the historical lack or the historical relative lack of rigor in the digital health space versus the biotech space, or just a combination of the fact that the right people haven't entered this space or not. But we really, really appreciate those insights, uh, Shaheen. Fascinating, fascinating conversation. I'll pass it on to Alex now for a couple more questions from his end.
0: Thank you, Shad. And thank you, Shaheen, for the great insights. I really enjoyed listening to the discussion and as a computer scientist like I was just imagining all the potential for AI and ML and digital biomarkers that we can integrate into all of this. Before I dive into my question, I was actually reading recently an article by Andrei Ostrovsky about how in the article like he's basically advocating for using reimbursement codes from medical devices into digital therapeutics. So, so that was kind of a very interesting thing. But I, I want to shift gears to the AI and machine learning perspective. There is so much potential in AI and machine learning, especially especially with a digitally native solution like digital therapeutics and digital health. And like like the technology is absolutely there. Like we can build models very effectively. Industry is much more advanced than healthcare in terms of AI and ML and we can learn a lot from that. So For example, if you look at like what Amazon or like Google are doing in terms of machine learning as a service where they are offering machine learning models as APIs. So I, I think like the technology is there but we still haven't figured out like how to integrate it into like the clinical practice and the workflow. And there are some skeptics who consider like AI, ML, on different points of like the Gartner curve of hype. From your massive experience in the space and from your position, I'm sure you have like a very broad overview and like kind of a a sharp outlook into the future. So would love to know your thoughts on kind of where are we in terms of AI and healthcare and in digital health, and how do you see it moving forward in the next maybe like three to five years especially like AI, digital biomarkers? And does that create opportunities for medical doctors who are just graduating to kind of jump into that
2: space? Absolutely. No, I love, love this question. Uh, I, I Frame for reference, around 10, maybe 15 years ago when I was at the Cleveland Clinic and IBM Watson just graduated from Jeopardy!, uh, we inherited IBM Watson and we did the first applications uh, in the Neurological Institute, in medical education. We fed uh, you know, training sets, obviously, and created models. Uh, frankly, it was an epic failure <laughs> at that time. And uh, I, I could dissect that. I could dissect that. So, um, uh, our te- you know, technology, interoperability, uh, the way that we've trained it, uh, all, all of it wasn't there. Now we have everything. I will say that we have now all the technical components Necessary uh, to to actually have what I called, you know, that people have been calling right, precision care, or we could start off with precision psychiatry, neurology, or anything, but just precision care. Now, this personalized medicine concept has been around for ages, decades, and so on. I actually think it's been depersonalized. Because so far it's been using genetics and things that, you know, that actually aren't really too relevant to us in our day-to-day lives, right? Genetics, proteomic markers, laboratory findings, and so on, and, not, and, and, and forgetting all of the digital traces that we live around everywhere, right? Our geolocations, our sleep-wake cycles, the actigraphy, uh, every other sensor-level data that you could go around. So 100%, what we do is create the digital biomarkers that create digital phenotypes that become now continuous measurements, continuous objective measurements, and then you could intervene I mean one, you could actually make predictions on diseases that are flaring or episodic or not, two, you could intervene on just the right time uh, you know that's necessary, and three, we could get that return that data back to a treatment team so they could actually make modulate you know uh, pharmacological decisions or procedures or things of that nature hundred percent in fact, last year I spoke with um I spoke at Mobisys uh, with a lot of colleagues. You know, that's a Microsoft and Google-sponsored, huge, you know, thousands and thousands of, of uh, folks in the data science and, and, and uh, mobile systems type of space. We discussed about the potential for DTX, and what needs to happen is interoperability. So we need uh, a progressive healthcare system, ideally a IDN, right, the integrated delivery network. We need a progressive, they naturally are, digital therapeutics company, that, but that's one well beyond CBTs, right? I would, I, you know, no bias here, but I would say Click Therapeutics could be one, all right. Then we need a progressive, um, no, no, truly, then we need a progressive kind of, uh, like you already mentioned, pharmacy, PBM system, uh, payer system, and all of that. If we could create this one data lake have shared learnings from bio, behavioral, health claims, imaging, EHR, and and, and whatever data into a data lake, create the models. Believe me, we're not going to be using these ancient systems for mild, moderate, and severe disease severity, making predictions on who gets complex care services, who gets in-home services, who gets physical therapy. We'll be able to do that with high fidelity and with cost savings. Now, the 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 reason i i told you we need those players is because you can see where the where the money flows there we we you know if you're incentivized for a fee for service model then why would you care about these types of things they're only cared about enriching more procedures and more billable hours that's not why i'm in it i'm in it to get higher outcomes and that's why we do that in an idn setting uh, mind you i mean stay tuned i might make an announcement that one of this <laughs> one of these uh you know coalition projects will be moving forward yeah <laughs>
0: No, that's fantastic, Shane. I really appreciate this point. And I think, like, I fundamentally believe that, like, the incentives of a system structure the behavior of players in that system. And so, like, I certainly, like, appreciate your point in terms of, like, creating the ecosystem where, like, the right incentives are actually, like, encouraging innovation and encouraging, like, digital therapeutics to move in the right direction. We recently spoke with Mayo Clinic and, like, I think they're they're doing some interesting stuff where, like, they're considering the Mayo Clinic as a platform. And as an ecosystem and kind of like working with early stage companies to kind of like help them set up, like integrate their innovations into clinical practice. So that's certainly very interesting. And I mean, I guess you've done a lot of innovation, both when you're doing your residency and when you're working in the hospital. And after that, I want to focus a little bit the discussion now on what should change in medical practice and medical training. I mean, for sure, taking care of patients, uh, Shaheen is like very important, right? Like it is the main job of a clinician. But at the same time, improving healthcare care outcomes is beyond taking care of individual patients. It requires effective and collaborative delivery of care. It requires innovative technologies, innovative business models. It requires setting up the reimbursement in the right way. And so really, like the way we hope kind of medical education changes over time is that medicine is no longer a degree where you're expected to go into the clinic and be a practicing clinician but medicine is actually a platform that enables you like to go into so many different career paths that interface in one way or another with the healthcare system i mean one of our previous guests was telling us how when she she was doing medical school in the uk like it was frowned upon any medical doctor who went outside the clinical path. And I just don't think that's the right culture. If we want to revolutionize medicine, if we want to create like an effective system in the future. So we'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of like what should change in the medical curriculum, what should change in, in medical education, residency training, so that we can encourage more of this like innovation and entrepreneurship and out of the box thinking really.
2: Absolutely. No, I really love this question as well. I, I used to be uh, a founding faculty member, actually department chair of neurology, uh, where we established a brand new medical school in Southern California. It's called California University of Science and Medicine. Uh, yeah, I, we, we saw it all the way through initial accreditation, preliminary accreditation, get our first cohort of students, and so on. Um, you know, it was actually built upon the principles of breaking all of those traditional barriers, And yes, there's been advances. It's so sad to say that there are advances, including, you know, Harvard's, um, you know, uh, systems-based medicine and um, uh, based on some uh, Canadian schools, uh, presentation-based, right? There's like a hundred ways that the body presents to a physician. So kind of doing, using the guise of cough, cold sore throat, things like that. From, day, from week one in medical school and, and teaching about anatomy, physiology, drugs, and all of that, you know, through the guise of a presentation. I think the next advancements are just like what you're saying. And I love the use of medical school as a platform. I mean, frankly, I've always thought of it like that. Uh, you know, really, what is it meant to teach you? Yes, there are some fundamental foundational uh, medical knowledge that you need to know about anatomy, physiology, uh mainly it's harnessing analytical skills of how to do self-directed uh learning uh how to critique right information that's presented from uh from variety of resources uh two yes uh the the business sides of healthcare i think that's germane and lacking in a lot of these systems actually pre-pandemic i was the one to kind of introduced actually telemedicine as a course in, in and on its own self in fact a lab right with a telemedicine facilitator um and uh, almost uh, like in simulations and oskis but then real patient encounters that that students would kind of use that goes on um and then we could borrow from other industries you know you talked about uh, potentially pathways right so serving as a platform that when you graduate you're solid and you could go into a variety of, of fields including clinical practice but excluding clinical practice right including industry farm farm have done that all the all along right for the last several uh, decades, so creating pathways. In fact, I, I brought in uh, Allergan and Amgen in Southern California. We almost created, you know just that exact you know pipeline or pathway into industry tracks for those that are destined onto that. Now I have some biases and they might not drive well with both of you, but I think you need to have uh, clinical experience, you know uh, with actual patients that is beyond uh, you know theoretical knowledge, uh, or even applied knowledge, but two well-controlled studies. I mean, think of it—almost like medical school is an RCT, and uh, residency is the real-world evidence, uh, where where you kind of see real cases and encounters outside of clean-cut, almost protected, uh, you know, environments by uh, by interns, residents, fellows, and attendings and faculty. Uh, I would say I, I think some of that is germane to be quite effective um, in these conversations beyond street cred, you know, to say that you have that, but, but to knowing being in the weeds of practice, you know, if someone just gone through medical school and now they're opining about why billing and coding is a problem, I'm going to, you know, right. It's everyone in this world is now talking about lived experience, whether we're talking about race relations, uh, or whether we're talking about competencies, right. For clinical education. I think people value when you have lived experiences, when you're offering up solutions, and I, I think that's germane. Yeah, this is
0: great. Thank you, Shaheen. I guess, honestly, like we can we can really go for hours. But maybe my last question, just. Being aware of time, what would be your recommendations for medical doctors who are just graduating? I mean, there is so much happening in healthcare. There is like so much disruption happening in the space of like digital health, in the space of biotech, like in the interaction of both, like in bio IT. So like there's new opportunities that are being created like all all around. And so like would love to know kind of a couple of practical recommendations or like a couple of like mental models for a medical doctors who are just graduating in terms of like how to think about positioning themselves, how to think about like identifying these opportunities and like being in the right position to uh, kind of jump on an untraditional career path.
2: Oh, yeah. No, I appreciate this question. I, I, it comes down to uh, a therapeutic principle, exposure therapy. So either you get exposed in your own institution, right? So you have to first have some insight that there's something else beyond clinical practice out there, and if they're listening to this podcast, I trust that they do have <laughs> that level of insight. They have to then do a needs assessment. Are you? Is it being met in your in your institution right so far? Uh, did you have opportunities, right, to actually look into healthcare administration, to life science industry, to therapeutics, and to um, all the other realms that are out there, right? Healthcare utilization. Um, and, and so on. I could read a laundry list. Were these where there's bona fide experiences that gave you exposure, or do you are you gonna have to take the impetus to look elsewhere? Um, two, you're gonna have to find out where do you get the most fulfillment, essentially. It, or do you get fulfillment from direct, immediate gratification of treating a patient, right? So achieving a health outcome, or is it fulfillment down the line, you know, if after you built a solution? and you've tested it, you've validated is that the fulfillment or when it gets in the hands of patients or is it commercial or entrepreneurial spirit that kind of gets you on board you have to do both of this so it's kind of what resources around you and expose yourself where where it's lacking two is where do you get your fulfillment where do you get you know where how do you uh you know click in this kind of world and then see you know which career kind of pathway uh does it and then the last thing is don't be afraid to experiment i you know i if you looked at my history i've been involved in in, let's see, academia, clinical practice, healthcare administration, um, uh, billing and coding, healthcare utilization. um, Let's see, actually at one point, even physical practices that was building in service lines that's going on, mergers and acquisitions, consulting in biotech and sciences, in regulatory sciences and regulatory affairs, therapeutic development, medical affairs. um, I mean, you name it, you have done all of this. Now, can I can I tell you, I've drawn on each experience, so you don't leave them behind and say, oh, been there, done that. You always it's a mapping exercise. What did I learn from the previous one that makes me better than if I just stuck with this one pathway? And, I, and you're building it. It's an incremental, you know, basis that's almost, uh, you know, creating this, this holistic type of structure that now when I enter an organization, I put so many hats on. They don't look at me as just an MD with clinical experience. They don't look at me as a biotech executive. They don't look at me as, oh, he is the one that used to make formulary decision making. They look at me with all of those type of hats. And I, and And believe me, it doesn't show. I mean, these are not visible traits. You got to make yourself known as well. So don't and don't leave institutions without having a deliverable or a milestone. That's another thing. It's believe me, if if you think the currency is knowledge, that doesn't show, right? (laughs) The currency has to be something tangible, something achievable. Did you build a solution? Did you publish on a solution? Did you commercialize the solution? Did you fail in this pursuit, essentially, but you managed to salvage a component of it or apply it elsewhere? Those are those are the currency in these markets that we're dealing with. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much Shaheen. Uh, I mean honestly it's been it's been a fantastic conversation and it's like I would say by far one of our best episodes. So uh, I think Chad and I like learned a lot and uh, I think our audience would learn a lot from this episode. So
2: certainly appreciate like all all the input and advice that you've shared. Thank you very much. Oh, I appreciate that. I've had likewise a tremendous fun. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you again, Shaheen. Really really had a great time with this conversation. But the last thing I wanted to ask you Is that, you know, you've had such an amazing impact during your, how can our audience members continue to follow the impact that you've had either in your personal career or with Click Therapeutics? How can our audience members learn more about what you're doing?
2: Oh, sure. Well, you know, if they want to learn about what I'm doing, I I, I suggest they just reach out to me on LinkedIn that's the only social media platform I still engage in. So <laughs> please, you know, I'm I'm the only Shaheen Lakan on there too, so don't, trust me, there's not going to be any more than that. Um that that might be the best way. I you know, I, I put out um you know, posts very selectively and so I'm not, you know, if I do put something it's probably worth uh reading and I'll probably link to <laughs> to this podcast as well. So, you know, this this will be a whole loop that goes on. Um other other than that, look there 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 are notable Notable sources that you should really, you know, you should diversify your sources. I must say, if you're just reading academic journals, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You are so behind, <laughs> frankly, go into press releases, right? <laughs> like read those, look into funding announcements, look into what this, because look, you don't have the money that people did and in these investors, institutional or otherwise to do due diligence. So trust where they are putting their money, because I mean... Uh, You know, when I entered Click Therapeutics, like I haven't told many people this. When I entered Click Therapeutics, it was right after there was a deal struck. It's a nine-figure, maybe even 10-figure deal if we hit the right milestones with Beringer-Ingelheim. And I said, dude, if they put in their probably 50 million due diligence effort, I'm coming in this organization. And so, hey, don't use your own money, use other people's money. And pe- press releases are great for looking at that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that, Insight Shaheen. And we try to use that principle as well, extend our bandwidth by listening to other really intelligent people, smarter people than me and Alex, like yourself. So, really appreciate everything that you've provided for us today and uh, welcome you on anytime.
2: Appreciate it. Likewise, would love to be on again. Thank you so
0: much. All right. Thank you. Shad, that was a great conversation with Shaheen. I really enjoyed it. When thinking about my takeaways, I think my two cents are around the process of understanding and uncovering where... The future trajectory of an industry is going. I think this was an interesting conversation with Shaheen, and it's very applicable to our audience because, you know, if you're in the middle of medical school or if you're in in your residency program and you're trying to think about a kind of career trajectory or a focused trajectory that's off the beaten path that you want to work on, being able to be strategic in your decision and anchor your decision around an area that has a lot of future growth is something that is very important and i think shaheen mentioned a couple of really interesting you know tactical points on uh, how to do that and how to figure that that area of focus be it digital health or gene therapy or synthetic biology or other different types of innovation that are happening within the healthcare landscape. I think Shaheen, the first point that Shaheen mentioned there is looking at the decisions of big and reputable institutions and understanding where those institutions are viewing areas of growth. And tactically, that can look like, for example, analyzing uh, where which areas have the highest NIH grant funding deployment in the last 5 years right you can go to the uh, reporter website and do that analysis on on the NIH grant distribution within healthcare and figure out that for example there's been a tons of funding going into the space of gene therapy and you'd expect that over the next I know, five, 10 years, there'll be massive growth in that area. And and I know gene therapy is like a very simplistic example, because like just by simple Googling, you get out that it's a very high growth area with a lot of massive potential there. But I think the concept of trying to anchor your decision and inform your decision by the analysis of decision of major and reputable institutions is a very kind of generalizable and an abstract point can be applicable to different processes. That's mainly on my end, Chad, over to you. Thank you,
1: Alex, for that point. Uh, I just wanted to reflect uh, a little bit about uh, the digital therapeutics space because it's a space that you know you and I have thought a lot about over the last you know many many months. And it was just a pleasure to speak with one of the pioneers, first of all, with one of the pioneering companies uh, in the space, Click Therapeutics, and one of the pioneers in the space, Shaheen. You know, from what I've seen, uh, the space is absolutely ripe for disruption. The first set of companies that started five to eight years ago, or five to 10 years ago, the, the so-called version 1.0 companies, they came in and basically built up the space. And they've done a pretty good job of breaking down the commercialization barriers and are still trying to by you know educating physicians, insurers, and regulators. They basically have had to prop up the space from scratch because the space just didn't exist a decade ago. And they've poured a combined, you know, billions of dollars into doing that, but unfortunately, I think the product and the discovery and development side of things have been neglected, and it's almost been by design because they've had very different barriers uh, ten or even five years ago than than we have now. So while some companies are starting to generate robust evidence with good robust products with good evidence, I think most still leave a lot to be desired and so i think an increasing focus on r d and bringing a biotech like evidentiary rigor to this space will be important so i just wanted to reflect a little bit on some of the trends that have been happening in the digital therapeutic space and where i see the space going moving forward but that's it on our side and uh, to our audience members join us next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path And remember to follow us on social media, on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. And to get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you next time.